0: So, today is Good Friday. And it is a day that the church, the Church of Jesus Christ, across denominational boundaries, across ethnic boundaries, across age demographics, across political parties, across national borders, and across continents has set aside to mark the crucifixion and the death of the Son of God. I confess to you that I've spent three weeks now, three or four weeks, maybe a little longer, knowing that I was going to be preaching this evening and sitting at the desk of my apartment and the desk in my office, uh, wrestling over what I could possibly say. That has not already been said. I've lived through 25 Good Fridays, soon to be 26. Some of you in here have lived through far more, and some of you have lived through far less. The Christian church has seen nearly 2,000 Good Fridays since the ascension of Christ. I began preaching here at Baylife Church when I was 19 and the high school pastor at the time, Chris Groover, asked if I would be willing to preach out of the book of James. And from that point on, anytime I had the opportunity to preach at this church, there was an overwhelming weight that I felt that it would be necessary for me in opening the inspired word uh, it would be necessary for me to bring it to bear on our lives. Uh, we we're told that the word does not return void and we should never leave the preaching of God's word unchanged. And so uh, I placed this pressure on myself to have application, uh, to preach for application, so that we would hear the word and respond in our lives week in and week out. And I don't think that that is a bad inclination The reality is that many of us are perfectly pious on Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, and we are wonderfully wicked the rest of the week. But this year, as I have wrestled through this and prayed through this and thought through this, I wonder if trying to present some sort of an application might be missing the mark. On this day, around 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate presented before an unruly mob in Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth, beaten and bloodied and bruised and humiliated and scourged. He presented our Lord with these words, "Ecce homo, in Latin it means behold the man. And I wonder if this evening... Better than me giving you five steps for a better marriage or better than me giving you a way to be a better father or a better wife or a better employer or employee. Better than me telling you how to be better sons and daughters. I wonder if the best thing that I can do tonight is to open the word of the Lord and like Pilate to say, Behold your God. The son of man beaten and bruised and battered for the sins of the world. And I don't think that this is wrong. Saint Augustine, Uh, That great hero of the faith so long ago uh, made such a compelling argument that God has not simply made us intellectual creatures. We're not just uh, computers where you input information and you output application. We're not simply driven by what we know. We're not simply driven by what we know we ought to do. In fact, we often fly in the face of what we know will be best for us. We know that we should wake up at that first alarm and spend time in the gym. We know that we should skip the drive-through. We know that fast food isn't good for us. But Augustine argued, and I think scripture teaches, that we are not simply driven by what we know. We are driven by what we love. It is not enough for you to know and intellectually assent to the facts of the crucifixion and the atonement of Christ. If all that happens tonight is that I can step aside and let the word of God speak and you can behold your God and love him more because of it, well, then I think that we might be able to live differently in light of it. This week, as marked by the Christian church as Holy Week, it begins with Palm Sunday It was on this day that Jesus, to fulfill the words of the prophets, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The city of Jerusalem had swelled to nearly 50,000 people prepared to celebrate the Passover. And when word had spread throughout Jerusalem that this miracle worker from Galilee, this son of a carpenter, this daughter of Mary, this man who teaches with authority not as the scribes and the Pharisees. When word had spread that this possible Messiah was entering the city of David, they snapped palm branches off from the trees surrounding the city and they laid, him, laid them at his feet saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what you and I may not recognize 2,000 years later is that palm branches were always a symbol of Jewish nationalism Whenever Israel had thrown off the yoke of its oppressors, whenever they had resisted invasion, whenever they had escaped tyranny, the palm branch, the fig tree, these were symbols of their identity. When they printed coins, there were palm branches and palm trees on them. And so as they lay the palm trees at the feet of Jesus, saying, Hosanna, they are declaring their expectation that as the Son of Man rides into the city of Jerusalem that he will liberate them from the tyranny of Rome and that he will overthrow the yoke of occupation, is it any wonder that at the end of this week they turn on him? Their expectations have been wrong. Their expectations have been short-sighted. The Son of Man has not come to overthrow Rome or Roman occupation, but instead he has come to throw off the yoke of sin and as the second Adam to destroy the tyranny of death and corruption as the creation was subjected to futility by the first Adam in the garden. I wonder if you and I come to the Son of Man with such short-sighted expectations as the people who wave palm branches on his entrance to Jerusalem. Thinking that our problems are political or economic or presidential, when our problems are far, far deeper, and we need a greater and more profound Messiah than what we even expect. Holy Week continues to Maundy, Thursday, when Judas Iscariot betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver before the Jewish leaders. It tumbles on into, uh, I'm sorry, Tumbles on into Wednesday, and then Monday, Thursday, where Christ shares this Last Supper, this Passover feast with his disciples. And at this point, he lets them know that he is perfectly aware that one of them is unfaithful and one of them will betray him. And he arises after instituting the Lord's Supper, and he goes to the garden from garden to garden. To the first Adam, the Lord says, where are you? But in the garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam says, Lord, here am I. To the first Adam, the first Adam says to the father, my will be done. But in the second garden, the second Adam says, thy will be done. And the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners by a kiss. What unfolds is complicated, to say the least. Each gospel gives us a snapshot of Jesus' Jewish and Gentile trial. But what we know is that ultimately, Jesus finds himself before Pontius Pilate in the gospel of John chapter 19. Verses 8 through 11, Pilate has had Christ scourged. He's presented him once again to the crowd with this phrase, Behold the man, and they chant, Crucify him. And so we're told in verse 8 that when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And so he entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? That's an interesting statement. I wonder if we've turned that over in our minds in our successive Good Fridays. Because from a human perspective, Pilate's statement is perfectly logical. He is a leader in the occupying and conquering nation. Several years earlier, the Roman Empire had taken from the Jewish leaders the right to execution. And so Jesus' fate is not in the hands of the Jews, it is in the hands of Pilate. Pilate no doubt thinks he's making a common sense statement. But set aside the Roman perspective and adopt with me the Christian New Testament perspective of what is happening here as our Lord stands before Pontius Pilate. The incarnate Son of God, who Paul says in Colossians, has created all things and continues to providentially sustain and hold together all things by his powerful word, stands before a man. Pilate stands before Christ. He says, you know that I have the authority to crucify you. But the only reason that Pilate stands before Christ is because even in his humiliation and in the abuses that he suffers, the Son of God continues to sustain the very laws of gravity that keep Pontius Pilate from floating off into space. He opens his mouth and he says, you know I have the power to crucify you. I have the authority to crucify you. But the only reason that he is able to open his mouth is because the word made flesh continues to sustain the existence of the very molecules that comprise his body, his mouth, his tongue, and his mind which animates them. And he exerts his authority. You know that I have the authority to kill you without ever recognizing that the only reason that Pontius Pilate is in an authority and the only reason that Rome has been raised up is for such a time as this, so that the Father in his sovereignty might unfold his plan, that the Son might be crushed for the iniquities of his people. What an absurd statement. I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus, with the wisdom of Solomon, doesn't answer a fool according to his folly. But he responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, referring to the Jewish leaders. Jesus answers Pilate, and I think he corrects a misunderstanding that you and I have. And it's simply that Jesus ended up here against his will. That Jesus ended up before Pilate by accident. In Pilate's mind, this Jewish man is here because of a political miscalculation. This miracle worker from Galilee has failed to keep a tight rein on his apostles, and one of them has gone wayward. Maybe he's run afoul of the Jewish leaders and unfortunately found himself here before the mighty arm of Rome. This is another failed insurrection, and Pilate stands At least he thinks he stands over this poor Jewish peasant and says, I have the power to kill you. But Jesus, early in John's gospel, made this statement. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I have the authority to take it back up. Jesus almost says to Pilate, do you think that the triune God was drawing straws at the fall and I got the short end of the stick? Do you think that I'm here by accident? Uh, Do you think that I'm here for any other reason than the fact that I chose this? Than the fact that I have willingly come to fulfill a promise made to the first Adam as the truer and the better Adam. That from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. I fear that you and I as Christians view what happened this evening so long ago as some sort of a cosmic old yeller that humanity is made rabid by the fall and mean old father God chains us up to the wooden shed out back so that he can put us down. And it's at the last minute that the son throws himself over the rabid dog of humanity to protect us. But the reality is that Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He has come to do the will of the father. In love, the Father sends the Son, and in glad submission, the Son goes freely. He chooses this. John Milton, the great poet uh, who is most known for his work Paradise Lost, imagines what the scene in heaven must have looked like after the fall of Adam. And in Milton's imagination, the father lays down very clearly the consequences of man's sin, that they will be cut off, that they will be damned, that they have lost the hope of eternal life and fellowship with God. And the father lays down the stipulations that the only way that this can be redeemed is by a perfect substitute, a truer and a better Adam. And Milton says all of heaven is silent until the voice of the Son breaks through. And in Milton's poem, Jesus says this, Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me, let your anger fall. Account me man, I for his sake will leave thy bosom. And this glory next to thee, freely put off, and for him lastly die, well pleased. On me, let death wreak all its rage. And so it goes. We're told that the crowd is unwilling to listen to Pilate's appeals. And Pilate condemns him to be crucified. In John chapter 19, verses 15 through 18, we are told that they cried out, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called, of the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I wonder if we've skipped over this as well in our successive Good Fridays. Because every gospel documents that Jesus went out, that he is led out of the city of Jerusalem. This is partially due to the law of Moses, that if somebody in Israel is to be put to death for their sins, it cannot happen within the camp, and it cannot happen within the walls of the city. It must happen outside of the walls. But Moses is writing into law a reality that sin wrought long before him. Because it's the sin of Adam that puts him outside of the walls of the garden. It's the sin of Israel that keeps them outside of the borders of the promised land. It's the sin of the people that requires Israel to put the wicked outside of their camp in the wilderness. It's the sin of the Canaanites that causes the land to vomit them out. And it's the sin of Israel that will cause the land to vomit Israel out. Sin puts us outside of the walls it does not simply separate us from the city of god and the garden of god and the people of god it separates us from one another adam and eve so fig leaves so that they can cover themselves not simply from god but from each other and the perfect only begotten son of god is put outside of the walls of the city not for his sin but for ours so that you and I might be brought back into the walls of the city and into fellowship with the God of heaven and earth. So he's led outside of the city so that we may be led in. Verse 28, as Christ is hung on the cross, as he has been mocked, after all of these things, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine was there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Interestingly enough, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus has made the statement that if any man would follow me, streams of living water would flow out of him. To the Samaritan woman in John chapter 5, he said that if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water. You would never thirst again. But the Son of God becomes thirst itself so that you and I might no longer thirst. St. Augustine Once again says, in describing the crucifixion, man's maker was made man. The ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die." The fountain of living water is made to thirst so that you and I will thirst no longer. And this drink is extended to him on a hyssop branch. If you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that after David's sin with Bathsheba, he pleaded in Psalms 52 that the Lord would cleanse him with hyssop. And when Israel prepared for the exodus as the angel of death entered the Egyptian camp... They took the blood of the lamb on hyssop branches and they spread it over the doorpost. We're fortunate to have more than one gospel because there's things that Jesus said that only certain gospel authors include. And so we know before Jesus' final statement from Mark 15, 34, that he cries out, in Aramaic, ilahi, ilahi, lama which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's two responses that tend to happen in our day and age. The skeptic looks, the skeptic looks at this and says, see, he failed. He never expected this. He never expected crucifixion. He expected what those with the palm branches expected. He expected political triumph over Rome. He is crying out because truly he feels abandoned because his mission has been unsuccessful. The Christian reads this, I think, possibly just as wrongly because many of us have said that this is the point at which the Father turns his back on the Son and breaks fellowship with him. But I just want to be honest with you. I have no idea how the Trinity can become a duality and the universe still exists better understanding of this a better understanding of this is that Jesus is beginning something songs are a funny thing in our day and age Uh, because the longer that you live with songs the longer they kind of find their way into your bones and your pores and your your bloodstream uh, the less that it requires from that song for you to recognize it and allow the real to play in your head So if I were to say, just a small-town girl living in a lonely world, she took the midnight train going anywhere. In West Philadelphia, born and raised, on the playground is where I spent most of my days. The song begins. You've grown up with it. You've lived through it. You've lived in it. For the people of Israel, the Psalms of David and Asaph and Solomon and Moses and the sons of Korah documented in the book of Psalms, they've lived them. They don't have contemporary worship leaders. They sing the psalms when they gather. They sing the psalms uh, when they work. There's every indication that the psalms are Christ's favorite book of the Bible. And what Jesus says in this statement in Mark 15 is the first few words of a psalm. Psalms 22, which Brad read for us during worship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now imagine with me as we walk through the 22nd psalm. Imagine for the Jewish leaders as this song begins to play in their mind as they observe what is happening on Golgotha. Imagine how this might play out because I think that this is Jesus' intention. It's long, but it's good. Psalms 22, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, "'Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. "'By night I find no rest.'" Yet you are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And at this point, I imagine that their eyes move up to the cross as the song plays in their mind. And they look from arm to arm to feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They have divided my garments among them and for my clothing they have cast lots. And at this point, their eyes fall from the cross to the Roman guards who are casting lots for the garments of Jesus. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation... They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And with that, Jesus says, It is finished. He has done it. John includes something that's important that upon uttering this, it is finished. He bows his head and he gives up his spirit. Even in death, nobody takes it from him. But he yields it willingly. Michael Horton, theologian out of Westminster Seminary, says it in this way. Even in just wars, rulers send others into battle, into a battle that they have declared. Only this king... Has walked alone and unarmed into the night to be willingly handed over to Satan, death, and hell in order to disarm the powers of darkness. It is indeed finished. He has indeed done it. And we mark that this evening. We move now into a time of communion. This was instituted by Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And it is profoundly important to us as Christians. I think that a great tragedy in the church is that we think of communion wrongly. We conceive of it incorrectly that we have communion because the ushers have taken time this week to prepare it. And it's not that I'm not thankful for them. Uh, We take communion because our tithes and offerings bought us bread and grape juice and nice little cups to fit both in. But the reality is that you and I take communion. The elements of communion are ultimately not paid for by your tithes and they are not presented by the hands of the ushers. They are bought and presented to you by the atoning work of the Son of God. You come to this table not by your own righteousness, but of righteousness that is not your own. And ultimately, it is not the ushers that serve you, but it is Christ who presides over this table. If you're a Christian, I wanna invite you to take time now to examine your hearts. Paul tells us in Corinthians that communion looks in several directions. We look back at what Christ has done. We examine ourselves now But he tells us that every time we come to this table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And when he comes again, there will be a greater table, a marriage supper of the Lamb. So, as you partake or you grab the bread and the grape juice, we ask that you hold on to it. Brad is going to lead us in this song that has been sung by the church for a very long time. Uh, It's often sung at funerals, but it's a song of anticipation. Beulah land, Beulah land. Looking forward to the day that we will see Christ face to face. And this table you come to now in a small portion will be fulfilled with Christ sitting bodily at the head of it. Take this time to examine yourselves. Hold on to the elements. And I'll come out in a few minutes and we'll take communion together. And I pray for us as we go. Oh, Father, what a marvelous mystery it is that to redeem slaves you would send a son. Father, what a terrible tragedy it is that your people so often fail to live in light of the profound atoning work of the Son of God. Father, what a shame it would be if we leave this time together failing to love you more. Lord, that you would not just shape our minds, but our hearts. That they would be conformed to the image of your Son. That we would carry in our bodies the afflictions of Christ. That we would walk in light not only of our Lord's death, but his resurrection and his return. Father, I pray as we tumble towards Sunday, that we would not spend this weekend as the first apostles did, wondering what was next, but we would spend this weekend rejoicing and knowing that Christ has not simply died, but that Christ has risen and that Christ will come again. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you on Sunday.